Welcome back to Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast all about the importance of the clothes we wear. This episode is going to be the start of a new three-part series all about re-evaluating modern sentimentalities. And I want to start off with the history of plus-size fashion. Now, a little trigger warning in this episode, I will talk a bit about body size, ideas towards plus-size bodies, and briefly diet culture. So feel free to skip this one if that's something you do not want to listen to. Much love and see you in the next one. Okay, I have found as of late that there is a general circulating idea online that people in the past were smaller, slimmer, wore smaller sizes, had smaller bodies, fit into different clothes than we do now, that people didn't eat as much, so were therefore slimmer, people were poorer, they laboured physically far more than we do now, etc, etc. And this has generally given us this idea that people were smaller in the past, but I want to debunk this. Not only is it damaging and alienates a whole community from feeling like they can access vintage fashion, my Myself often included, but it just simply isn't true. It also circulates this idea that in the past, because they were smaller, they were better, they were more glamorous, more beautiful, more worthwhile than we are now, because nowadays everyone is apparently so much bigger than we used to be. For some reason, the idea of slimness is intrinsically tied to our fashion history consciousness. The only sort of popularized images of fat fashion are people like Queen Victoria, for example, and people always want to comment on the fact that she ate a lot. She could eat a whole course in 20 minutes. She never exercised, etc, etc. But people have and always will be fat. Fatness doesn't always have to equate to food and lack of exercise and diet fads. Some people are just bigger, have different shaped bodies. It's not a dirty word and it's not something to be ashamed of. And if you love fashion and you love vintage fashion, you are worthy to be a part of that subculture too. And so with that in mind, I want to delve into the history of plus size fashion to just debunk this idea that I see circulating. It existed and it has done for a long time and people have always been big. And you know what? what? Perhaps these clothes don't exist because they were actually worn. Perhaps it's all a big conspiracy and the tiny size 6 dresses from the 60s you wish you fit into only exist because nobody actually ever wore them. Now, I'm not going into the acceptance of fatness far into the past in this episode. Think Renaissance and Greco-Roman. It's not really about that. It's more a way to prove to you that larger people existed as long as off-the-rack fashion has and go through some of the lead designers and icons who spearheaded this plus-size fashion. But basically, it's a topic that's fairly close to my heart because I do like to wear vintage fashion myself and oftentimes I do feel alienated from being able to wear certain dresses that I see that I like because I am just a little bit bigger than perhaps your average, I'm doing bunny is his, average size. It's something I sort of feel quite passionately about because I also know a lot of people in this community who feel the same way as I do and I just think it's so negative this idea that people in the past were slim, people now are big and that's why if you're big you can't wear these dresses because it's your fault because you're too big <laughs> you should be small like people used to be now I don't want to get into that too much but it is something I you know like I said have a personal attachment to and it is something I think that's important to talk about because the idea of plus size fashion is very important right now it's something I see written about a lot and particularly in terms of the vintage community and vintage fashions and so let's just get into the history of plus size fashion 
Now, I'll start this chronologically. So generally, Lane Bryant is accepted as the first woman in the USA to cater to a plus size, a more curvy-figured clientele. This began in the early 1900s at the turn of the century as Bryant started a trade in clothing designed for expectant mothers and newborns. So essentially, this was clothing made for larger bodies with bigger busts and bigger hips due to the way the body changes during pregnancy. Lane Bryant Inc. is still an American woman's apparel and intimate specialty realty focusing on plus-size clothing. Now, Lane Bryant is a really interesting individual. She was widowed at a very early age and supported herself and her young son as a dressmaker. She borrowed money and went to the bank to open an account, and they actually misspelled her name on the application as Lane instead of Lena. And in 1904, she rented a small storefront in Fifth Avenue with living quarters in the back, and there she hung her garments from the gas fixtures and opened the doors to sell them. (laughs) Asked by one of her pregnant customers to design something presentable but comfortable to wear in public, Bryant created a dress with an elasticized waistband and accordion pleated skirt. This would become the first known commercially made maternity dress. And this is really what paved the way for her to start making clothes for people with bigger bodies. This dress was welcomed not only by middle class women who were pregnant, but also by women who were pregnant of a lower class who didn't have as much money and still had to work. The maternity dress soon became the best selling garment in her shop. Though Bryant came up with an innovative and commercially viable product, she had a lot of trouble getting the word out. Tradition dictated that topics like pregnancy were not discussed in the press because they were a women's issue. Yuck. (laughs) Her husband took on this challenge by convincing the New York Herald to accept advertising for their venture in 1911. When the paper did, the shop's entire stock sold out the next day. So this is really interesting because it clearly shows there was a desire for slightly larger women and pregnant women to want to wear these clothes. You know, it was probably difficult to access because of the taboo, like I mentioned. But also, I don't think a lot of shops before this greatly catered to these types of women. But also, we do need to remember, and I'll go into this in a later episode, that off-the-rack sort of fast fashion didn't really exist before this time period. You would go into department stores, you'd go to shop, and your clothes would be more or less tailored to you. Clothes are very expensive, and even if you were at a more working-class level, you would probably make your own clothes, you would get friends or family to make them for you. So clothes didn't exist in the way that they do now, particularly. It was at this time period, the turn of the century, with people like Mr. Selfridge with Selfridges, who really spearheaded this off-the-rack way of buying clothes. And so clearly there was a... Um, a type of woman, a pregnant woman or a large woman who needed access to these clothes that were perhaps harder to find in the bigger department stores. It was in 1909 that Brian met Albert Malson, the man who I mentioned earlier, who is her future husband. He was so inspired by her adjustable waistbands that he patented new designs to fit varying sizes of women's bodies. He was a mechanical engineer and this was a really, really important part of her future company. They created a brand of clothing for stout bodies, as well as for teens in their 20s, used his background in engineering, to sort of understand stout women's curves and surveyed over 4,000 customers in order to patent this new waistband. Using this research, he learned how women with bigger bust sizes and shapes were different from the standard sizing and grading systems that they had at the time period. His research led him to the discovery that women's bodies, especially above a certain size, varied greatly 
from person to person, as is maybe obvious us to now, but perhaps less for people at this time period. Basically, he established and published the three most common shapes he experienced in his research through full busted, stout all over and flat busted. Now, these are, you know, not really what we'd think about today when we think of bigger bodies. But at the time period, it was really quite spearheading to think about women's body shapes in this way and in a non-sexual way as well. Um, So I think it's really, really interesting that he surveyed women, that the two of them worked together to create common larger body shapes in order to be able to cater to a wide range of clientele. But with all that being said, the thinking behind the three distinct shapes that we see here still influenced the way plus-size fashion is fit today, particularly in the USA. So in the 1910s and just before World War One, after measuring 4,500 of her own customers, as well as gathering information from about 200,000 other women, it was obvious for these two that a new challenge had to be met. And after determining the three types of stout women together, they designed clothing to fit each type. And plus-sized women quickly eclipsed the maternity line. By 1923, company sales reached 5 million, which is equivalent to about 80 million in 2021. There was, unfortunately, some exclusion from newspapers, but to bypass this, the Maltons created the first mail-order catalogue for maternity wear. By 1919, their stout catalogue had 52 pages and the maternity catalogue had 76 pages. So slowly, slowly, the plus-size clothes started to eclipse these maternity numbers, becoming their best-selling product. But by the 1920s, as I said, Lane Bryant started selling clothing under the category for the stout woman, which grew from what she began with specific catered maternity wear, clothing with larger bust lines, which ranged between a 38 to a 56 inch bust line. See, even in the 1920s, we had women who today would be considered plus size or curvy, just because the primary fashion ideal of the time favoured a tall, slim, boyish build doesn't mean that everybody looked that way or even wanted to look that way. natural bodies aren't gonna just decide to change (laughs) depending what's in fashion at the time. There are a whole host of photographs and fashion plates as well as advertisements from this era that show women who would now be considered curvy with fuller busts and bigger bums in the classic 1920s silhouette and they look gorgeous. What the hell are those dresses? (laughs) Just like the women with the more ideal body shape of the time. These clothes for stout women were also sold by women with larger sizes to make the plus size shopper feel at ease and to make the range seem more viable as women could see the clothes being worn. I mean, unfortunately, these clothes were advertised as slenderizing fashions for the stout woman, which is just a phrase that makes me feel a bit ick, but we still can't deny the wave this would have made in terms of availability at this time period. As I said, these larger women existed, yet they just didn't fit into what was deemed acceptable at the time and their bodies weren't catered to in the same way because of the idealized silhouette of the time period. There were also celebrities at this time, jazz musicians and actors, who have very curvy body shapes and show us a really interesting side of 1920s glamour that is often overlooked. The plus-size woman, basically. <laughs> also in the 1920s, there is a popular small boys clothing store, Brodie's, now Bloomfield apparently, which started the husky-size clothing. So the trend was growing not only for women, but children and males too. Into the 1930s, we see plus-size fashion only really being catered to in terms of bus size, with the opinion that bus size determined body size, which obviously isn't 
necessarily true, but still bigger than really had been catered to before. I think we also need to remember that prior to this, as I was saying a minute ago, plus size clothing would have existed, but clothes were not bought off the rack, so to speak, and would have been tailor-made for individuals. So of course, this growth in plus size fashion can only really be accredited to the blossom of fashion and ready-to-wear styles, which is where the phrases really started to be used. But as I said, in the early 19th century, women's fashion was highly ornate and dependent on a precise fit. So these ready-to-wear garments for women did not become widely available in the beginning of the 20th century, before women would alter their previously styled clothing in order to stay up to date with fashion trends and would fit their clothes to their changing body. Women with much larger incomes would have purchased new, fully tailored clothing in current styles, while middle-class and lower-class women adjusted their clothing, the clothing to fit changes in fashion by adding new neck collars, shortening skirts, cinching shirt waists, and they would have changed their sizing depending on if their bust grew or their waist grew with age, or if they became pregnant, they would simply cater the clothes they already had to their changing larger body shape. So this idea of plus-size fashion only really came into being alongside this sort of off-the-rack, ready-to-wear style of fashion. Now, into the 1930s, Bryant, who we saw earlier, ran the stout clothing range throughout this era. As she said, whatever your figure problem, if you're stout, I have the style for you, reads Elaine Bryant note. <laughs> the idea of slenderizing was still prevalent, but plus-size clothing from this brand was being created for years to come. Here, I also want to mention Amelia Earhart. Now, you might be surprised to hear this name on this episode, but let me explain. <laughs> Earhart began manufacturing her clothing line in 1933 in her suite in New York's Hotel Seymour. As I learned from my research, and according to History.com, quote, Amelia Earhart's accomplishments above the clouds made her a worldwide icon, but she was also a savvy businesswoman. In the 30s, Earhart became one of the first celebrities to create her own own fashion line. Today, women almost always purchase their clothing as separates, but it was the record-setting aviator who first popularised this trend. So her fashion-forward practical designs continue to influence fashion designs today. The clothing line included 25 outfits, from dresses and skirts to pants and outerwear, and each garment featured a tag with her signature in black writing, overlapping a red plane that was darting from left to right, which is so cool. <laughs> The clothing line was groundbreaking. It was seen as eccentric and was also very practical. And although families across the country were struggling with the fallout from the Great Depression in the 30s, fashion, you know, fashion on a dime, let's say, was still as important as ever. The idea for Earhart's line was likely inspired by a visit from renowned fashion designer Elsa Schiaparelli, probably said that wrong. The two women discussed the idea of practical clothes for active living the same brand of clothing that Earhart would later release. Now, this idea of separates was important to women who wore larger sizes. Not always a female body is particularly the same from top to bottom, and this allowed women with bigger bottoms or bigger tops, for example, to be accommodated for. Some women, for example, have a small bust, but large hips or large legs. And so the fashion inclusivity before this was based off bust size, as well as an all-encompassing idea to determine body size. And so this idea of separates was very useful to them and actually was pretty important in the plus-size community to have access to fashions that Bryant, for example, may not have catered to. Just wanted to talk about that a little bit. Now, by the time the 1940s rolled around, during and just after World War II, America was trying to assert itself as a global superpower in the fashion industry. According to fashion historian Dr. Lauren Downing, interviewed for Dear, 
As a result, the idea of who the American woman was came into question. It was decided that she was tall, athletic and well-rounded. Unfortunately, investment in creating great clothes for women who didn't fit into those categories did fall by the wayside. Even when retailers did sell clothes in plus sizes, the illustrations in ads didn't realistically portray the women they were selling to, or the language used was bordering on offensive. But into the 1940s, we had Claire McCardle, who created something called the Kitchen Dinner Dress, which was a hugely popular button dress with an attached apron, and these were available in quite a large array of sizes for the time period. Clearly, the want and desire was there, and the companies and designers that did cater to this group cashed in. Moving into the 50s, off-the-rack clothing was very, very popular, and an off-the-rack sizing chart was designed by the Department of Commerce, and the USA clothing industry was realising they were losing a lot of money by not catering to a broader size range, because these plus women still existed, (laughs) particularly in the older market. These took on an array of body sizes, not just bust size, including bust, hips, height and girth, ranging from sizes 8 to 38. But we also need to consider the changing standard of fashion at the time, which did cater to a more hourglass figure type, with bigger bust, bigger hips, fuller skirts and more oversized shoulders. So naturally there was going to be a progression of clothing fitting larger selection of female bodies due to this evolution in what was deemed fashionable and beautiful. Now, moving into the 60s, this is a really, really interesting time period in terms of the plus size body, particularly in the West, but also across the world, really. So during the early part of the 20th century, obesity was seen as very negative. It was seen as detrimental to the community via decreasing human efficiency and that obese people interfered with labor productivity, particularly in the coastal areas of the United States. And as I said earlier, this was still quite prevalent, particularly after the Second World War this idea of productivity and body type started to become a bit more in the conversations. Now, this kind of political climate was the background of the fat acceptance movement, which originated in the late 1960s after the Second World War and these negative ideas towards body type that was bit more prevalent. Like other social movements from this period, the fat acceptance movement, initially known as fat pride, fat power or fat liberation, (laughs) often consisted of people acting in an impromptu fashion. A fatid was staged in New York Central Park in 1967. Called by radio personality Steve Post, the fatid consisted of a group of 500 people eating, carrying signs and photographs of Sophia Loren, an actress who was famous for her larger figure and burning diet books. Now, according to a magazine called Dear, In the 1960s, this revolution was everywhere. Taking cues from Vietnam War protests, women banded together to fight weight bias and discrimination through the radical fat acceptance movement. Though the movement wasn't about fashion, it set the stage for the shift in attitude that happened in the industry the following decade. In the 1970s, fashion became more about loving our bodies and trying to hide and conceal our natural larger shape. A modelling agency that exclusively repped plus size and petite models, Big Beauty's Little Women Agency, (laughs) was even launched during this time. It wasn't until the 1980s that plus size became the descriptor of choice for sizes 14 and up, beginning with people like Lane Bryan and a kind of more modern idea of this idea of the stout woman, which is not really a very um, accepting term, I wouldn't say. Even high-end fashion designers started getting in on the game, including Valentino and Givenchy, because of the decline in the sale of luxury clothing. In fact, Vogue, the fashion magazine notorious for the lack of size diversity on its pages, has its only plus size advertorial as in money had to be paid to make it in. But back to the 60s. In 1967, Lou Luderbach wrote an article in the Saturday Evening Post called More People Should Be Fat in... (laughs) 
<laughs> Capital letters. In response to discrimination against his wife, the article led to a meeting between Lodebach and William Fabre, who went on to found the first organisation for fat people and their supporters, originally named the National Association to Aid Fat Americans, and currently called the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, NAAFA. NAAFA was founded in America in 1969 by Bill Fabre in response to discrimination against his wife, as I said. He primarily intended to campaign for fat rights, However, a reporter attending the 2001 NAAFA conference notes that few attendees were active in fat right politics and that most women came to shop for fashion, wear it in the conference, catwalk, or to meet a potential partner. And since 1991, Fabre has worked as a director with the Council on Size and Weight Discrimination, specialising in the history of the size acceptance movement. So this is really interesting in terms of these movements were happening, but women were sort of involved in a way in that they just wanted clothes that fit them. <laughs> and I think this is kind of very telling in itself. Obviously, I'm sure a great deal of women were involved in these fattens and these movements in the 60s, but I'm sure a lot of women who maybe didn't have time or who were working jobs who were parents were involved in this in terms of simply just needed bigger clothes that fit them and I think that's quite interesting. So starting from the 1960s some bigger size fashion revolutions happened a lot from the 70s to the 90s particularly in the USA and these really began after the fashion group of New York released a study predicting the demise of the baby boomer junior market. As the boomers were coming of age Mary Duffy's Big Beauties was the first model agency to work with hundreds of new plus size clothing lines and advertisers and for two decades this plus size category produced the largest per annum percentage increases in ready-to-wear retailing which is so so telling and moving into the 70s in 1972 the feminist group the fat underground was formed this began as a radical chapter of naafa which i mentioned a minute ago and spun off to become independent when the naafa expressed concerns about its promotion of a stronger activist philosophy the fu the fat underground were inspired by members of the Radical Therapy Collective, a feminist group that believed that many psychological problems were caused by oppressive social institutions and practices, which I think we can all agree we do see today. It was founded by Sarah Fishman and Judy Freespirit, and the Fat Underground really took issue with what they saw as a growing generalised bias against bigger bodies in the general community, but particularly in STEM communities. Their diet is a cure that doesn't work for a disease that doesn't exist. Wow. Shortly afterward, Fishman moved to Connecticut, where, along with Karen Scout James, she founded the New Haven Fat Liberation Front, an organisation similar to the Fat Underground in its general ideas. Moving into 1983, the two groups collaborated to publish a seminal book in the field of fat activism called Shadow on a Tightrope, which collected several fat activist position papers initially distributed by the Fat Underground, as well as poems and essays from other writers. And it was these women that spearheaded this idea that people of larger bodies and diet culture was negative because of the societal issues we had towards it. It was also in this era in 1979 that the term Big Beautiful Women, BBW, was coined by Carol Shaw. And this launched a fashion and lifestyle magazine of the same name aimed at plus-size women. The original magazine closed in the 90s, unfortunately, but the term BBW has become widely used to refer to bigger women now, perhaps in um, less... Uh, safe for work ways than it was originally but still it's a term that is widely used and was coined by a larger woman to cater to women of a similar group as her and I think that's quite interesting. 
And the fact that it was a fashion magazine that was aimed at larger women, I think that's very telling too, and would have advertised fashions for the bigger women, and it was somewhere for them to go to feel accepted. I think the 80s particularly was quite a dangerous and negative era in terms of body image and body size, particularly with the jazzercise phenomenon that you saw. So I think it's also very easy to think that larger women didn't exist in this era, one, because of the fashions that were popular, and two, because of people's ideas, particularly in the USA, that everyone was slim and everyone was exercising and everyone was obsessed with jazzercise and killing their bodies for the perfect shape. But magazines like this and the popularity of it clearly show that that wasn't true. And actually, there were people with larger body sizes existing in this time period. Their stories are just perhaps eclipsed by the idea which don't get me wrong both bodies are completely valid and if you want to do jazzercise and be you know fit and slim and muscly then that's completely absolutely fine too but also let's not forget that not everyone was accessing that or had the ability to access that and even if you did access that it doesn't mean that you were (laughs) slim and fit and muscly you could still be healthy and fit while having a larger body type so I think the 80s is an interesting one in terms of thinking about plus size fashion in fact in 1980 Max Mara started Marina Rinaldi one of the first high-end clothing lines that was built particularly for plus-size women because they noticed there was a big market for catering to the larger woman that was not being accessed by a lot of other companies and I'm sure they absolutely cashed in on this. Now, into the 90s and the 2000s and a bit later on, um, I don't think any major waves happened. I think, basically, people like Lane Bryant were still going strong. You had companies in the UK like Evans, which was a plus-size clothing shop that catered to bigger women and men. And these kind of stayed steadfast, really. And moving on to, like, the later 2010s and to now, I think companies like ASOS and bigger companies like that are slowly introducing plus-size size clothing as part of their clothing ranges and you don't get individual shops that are catered to plus size clothing quite in the same way. The necessity is maybe different and hopefully companies are going to start to make bigger sizes, you know, XL, 4XL, all that kind of stuff, a permanent fixture in their clothing lines. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are ways to go with this and it's something I really struggle with. I'll see a dress in a shop that I absolutely love and even though it's it goes up to a size let's say 16 or 18 it's not really for a size 16 or 18 and it will not fit and it is sad to see something that you want to wear just not catering to you but I have been noticing just from a personal point of view it's been happening less and less but speaking of I want to speak a little bit about what I spoke about at the very beginning of this episode and that is the idea of plus size fashion in vintage clothes now like I said in the vintage community it is very very hard to find bigger clothes are true vintage. For example, 60s dresses, 50s pedal pusher trousers, they are often, if you're going for the true vintage route, very, very small. And I think that has given us this idea that people in the past were slimmer. And so if you are larger nowadays, you shouldn't or couldn't or people don't really want you to access these fashions. But this episode has perhaps shown you that that clearly was not true and that there was a huge, huge market for over 100 years in the ready-to-wear sector of plus-size fashion. And women wanted these. They bought them, they wore them, they needed them because whether you were pregnant, as we saw, with the Lane Bryant right at the beginning of its early days or just a woman of a larger body type or just simply fat which is not a dirty word (laughs) 
you needed bigger clothes and you would have bought these. And like I said, perhaps these clothes don't exist now because they were worn. Perhaps they were worn more than the smaller clothes. And perhaps they were so popular that they don't exist today purely because on a day-to-day basis, they were worn by everyday women. Maybe there's something in that. Maybe there isn't. I'm not entirely sure. But I still think it's something important to think about. And that is why companies like Lindy Bop, RIP, (laughs) and things like that, that will make vintage inspired clothes in larger sizes are so 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 popular with plus size community and the vintage community because it is very difficult to access larger clothing if you are a larger body type in the true vintage style i hope this episode has kind of shown you a bit about the fact that this myth about people were slimmer is just not true and in fact fat people larger people have always existed and they always will And plus size fashion has a big longevity to it. And women and men and children have always wanted plus size fashion. And I'm sure before the 1900s, they did too, just in a different way to off the rack. I hope you learned something from this episode. Do go to my Instagram at Silhouettes Podcast and I'll share some images of the early Lane Bryant fashions and some sort of plus size icons and some really interesting plus size fashions. You can see the visuals of those over on there. And just even just Google for yourself, have a look at some of the designers, have a look at some of the shops that I mentioned and you'll see some really cool images of um, women of bigger body types in vintage clothes that are kind of, you don't really see um, shared about quite as much unfortunately. I hope you enjoyed and I'll see you in the next one. Stay fab everyone.